Amen. So yeah, good evening, Amen. everyone. Welcome to welcome to another conversation on Heaven's Gate. Um, today we're going to be talking about symbols, and the name of today's topic is Introduction to Symbols. For those of us that are here for the first time, the way ah, our conversations go, and like I, it, it, it is a conversation, you know, and I'll start by introducing the subject and say a few things about it. And um, I'm hoping that as I begin to speak, thoughts, comments, questions arise in our hearts. And from the thoughts, comments, and questions that arise, we're going to be building this conversation together. So there's not really a set template. As I'm here, I didn't make any notes. I don't make any notes for the lectures. I just sit here and I'm waiting to receive from the Holy Spirit. So. We're all going to build this together and learn together by the grace of God. So yes, yes, welcome everyone. Symbols, 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 symbols. I think the first thing to say is two things. Two things for us to, or let me say one thing for us to remember. There is reality and there is a representation of reality. There is reality and there is a representation of reality. A representation tells you about a reality that one cannot know unless they experience firsthand. A representation is like an approximation of a reality that has been experienced. For example, and this is one that is very common, water is a reality, which I know every single one of us has experienced. And based on one's experience of it, different peoples in different parts of the world all give it different kinds of names. The Chinese call it shui, the Spanish call it agua, the English call it water, the Yorubas call it omi, different names, different names describing one reality. But even if I say shui or agua or omi or water, it doesn't exactly tell me what that substance is, what that reality is. It can only tell me what it's like. Because the fact is, no matter how well I elaborate the experience of water, no matter how well I talk about what water is like, it's still a symbol of that reality. Does that much make sense to us? Yes. Yeah? So it's still a symbol of that reality. And life is made up of so many different kinds of symbols, you know. As we're here speaking now, you know, the language we use is symbolic. If I tell you I am happy, that word happy wouldn't have any substance or relevance if you're not able to attach that word happy to the experience that is within yourself, the experience that is intangible. So the word happy only has merit so long as it's attached to a feeling that you can remember. If, for example, you spoke to a person who was um, maybe, let me say, someone who 
was from Bulgaria. Well, Bulgaria is too close. Maybe it's someone who was from deep, deep China, who has never heard English before. If you say happy, because in their memory, there's no connection between that word you just used and their experience of what we call happiness. What you're saying will be jargons to them, true or false? True. You know? So, for a symbol to mean something to me, I have to know the idea that is attached behind it so that it can have some kind of meaning to me. If I look at the word happy written on text, H-A-P-P-Y, and I'm not familiar with the English language, I will look at what's on that paper and I'll say it's jargon. But here's the thing. I know what happiness is, except in my language, I don't call it happiness. So I know the reality, right? It's just that I'm not familiar with the symbol they use to describe the reality. Do we understand that? Yes, yes. Yes. So it's possible to encounter a symbol that makes absolutely zero sense to us. But that does not mean that the reality that the person used to represent, we don't have an idea of. So it's possible for me to see in the Chinese letters, oh, I need some food in their alphabet. But when you read it, it looks like jargons because you're not familiar with the symbols. You're not, you're not familiar with the reality attached to the symbols. You're familiar with the reality, but because you're not familiar with the reality attached to that symbol, you can't have any connection with it. You know? And just like language, different peoples in different parts of the world at different times experience a certain kind of reality. And when they experience that reality, they attribute a symbol to that reality based on their own personal understanding, based on the time which they lived, and based on their culture, you know? Because a symbol has to be something that pertains to me as an individual. For example, I mean, I'm sure some of us growing up in Nigerian homes, you know? <laughs> when we're young, maybe the visitors are in the house, and then maybe we're, watch we're still watching TV, when we know that once the visitor enters into the house, it's time to get out of the living room. And our mom just gives us this eye. How many of us are familiar with that symbol? <laughs> Over familiar. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, someone from China might not be familiar with it. And you look at the child like that, and they'll be so confused. They don't even know what's going on, you know? So every culture, every kind of people have different kinds of symbols that represent certain kinds of things. For example, in Nigeria, when we give the five pounds in someone's face, we call this waka. And if someone does it to us, especially when they do it with a very um, tight face, we get offended, this person has insulted me. But you see, if you go to Japan and you put five fingers in someone's face, they can't, they can't feel like you're, you're doing it because they can't, they're not able to connect the reality to that symbol you're using, you see? However, they will probably have a symbol for that same reality which Waka means. And if you use that symbol for them, they will get offended, true or false? True. True. 
So it's possible to meet two people who both know a reality, but they have different symbols by which they express it. And if one, if both of them are not familiar with the symbols they use to express this certain reality, both of them will be completely at conflict with one another, even in language. Tell me, have you noticed that even though all of us speak English, everyone uses English differently? You know, for example, now, like me, for example, you know, maybe I, 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 um, I make a very nice dish, right? And my friend asks me, like, oh, how is this dish? I'm like, man, this meal is bad. <laughs> you know? Now, I'm using the word bad, but I actually mean good, right? And if someone is not familiar with how I use the English language, if I say, man, this food is bad, they'd be like, oh, what's wrong with it? Do you guys understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So, even if all of us speak the same language. Yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah. So, even if all of us speak the same language, in that same language, it's very possible that we, we even create our own symbols. And that's something one has to learn, especially when we start to relate with people, because once you start to relate with people outside of your, um, your immediate environment, you start to realize that in different cultures, in different families, in different states, people process things differently. For example, now, here in Dubai, you know, based on their culture, which is similar to um, the Hebrews, culturally speaking, when they talk about the bottom of a person's foot, you know, in the Bible it says, and I'll put all your enemies under your footstool, you know, that is a Middle Eastern um, symbol that speaks about someone being subjugated to you, someone being your servant, someone being your slave, someone being beneath you. So in this part of the world, I remember one day I sat down at a restaurant and then I crossed my legs, you know, and my foot was pointing towards the left. And I just noticed that there was one man there, he was just eyeing me totally in a very nasty way. He was just looking at me like, I'm like, I don't have to ask my friend, I'm like, are you, is it just me or is this old man here just giving me a funny eye? And then he's like, oh, bro, put your legs down, bro. If you, over here, when you point your feet at people, that's like the biggest insult you can give to them. I'm like, oh my, you know? <laughs> I didn't know. And once I put my leg down, he stopped eyeing me. So I did not know that in their culture, pointing your foot towards someone is a symbol to tell them you are a slave, you are my dog, and all this, you know, so over here is a really big insult. But in Nigeria, Kilo uh, coming, you know, <laughs> you know, that one does not mean anything to me over here, you know. So as we start to interact with different kinds of people, we realize that different symbols mean different things to them. Some people, if you come at them, smiling too much, they will think that something's wrong with you. I mean, has anyone had that experience before? When someone just comes and they're just smiling and you're like, what's wrong with this person? <laughs> I've never experienced that before. That's happened yeah. to me, but in the opposite. Yeah. Like, I've been smiling and then people wonder what's wrong with me because I'm always... <laughs> well, for me, that's actually very true. <laughs> you smile a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very good thing. <laughs> I remember I had... um a black American friend one, who, who, um, 
He never used to smile, you know. He never used to smile. And every time I see him, I mean, he, he genuinely likes you, but he just doesn't smile. So I asked him, I'm like, bro, Rashid, why aren't you always smiling, bro? He's like, what do you mean? You know, he started getting defensive, like, what's going on? I said, why, do you, why don't you smile? You know, then he started telling me about the culture back home that in the streets that because people, you know, if you don't have a very tough face on, you know, if people just see you just smiling anyhow, they think you're weak and then they'll rob you. You know, that's literally what he said, <laughs> you know? And it's like, so where I'm from, you don't smile like that. Like if you're smiling, people ask you, yo, yo, what's, what's making you so happy? <laughs> you know? And um, so, yeah, from his perspective, seeing me smile was something strange because in their own part of the world, when they see a guy smiling too much, it's a symbol of weakness. It's a symbol of someone who doesn't have strength. So, yeah, generally, when we start to approach different peoples from different parts of the world and different cultures, we start to realize that people have symbols for different things. And if we're very witty and sharp, we'll pick that up quickly so that we can adapt to each new environment we are in. The biggest mistake a person can make is when they enter into the midst of a different kind of people who possess a different psychological type, and you assume that these people think like you. That will be the biggest mistake a person can make, and one will always enter into trouble. Like the Chinese, for example, you know, the way they do their business, it's not about how, it's not about how um, prominent you are or how much money you've made. For them, business is like family. So when they meet you, they want to dine with you. They want to get to know you. They want to know about your family. They want to get to know about, about all these things. If you just approach them and you just want to go straight to business, it's very, it's, for them, it's, it's a red flag. And they start to be wary of you, you know, because they feel as if, oh, you're not here about the money because for them it's not just about the money it's about the relationship they build with the person so if you approach them and you're not talking about the money 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 and you don't show any kind of care for their family and you also don't show them your family they feel as though you're insulting them you know and if you don't know that you just be going around offending everyone offending everyone offending everyone <laughs> you know so why did i say all this I'm saying all this because the Bible, even though it's translated to us in English, and we have it in English, it was not originally written in English, neither was it written by English people. The biggest mistake a person can make, and the biggest mistake that we in this time have made, is approaching a book that was created from people with a Middle Eastern mindset, with the mindset of the Westerners. Do we understand that point? Yeah. 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 How many? How many of us are guilty of that? That we read the Bible and we interpret every story from the different uh, present-day experiences. Very good. I am. That's good. You know, <laughs> someone can read the Bible now. And um, because one is not familiar with the cultural context and the symbol, it's very, it's very easy to assume that the Bible is misogynistic, which is something that is very prevalent this time. How many of us have looked at the Bible and thought it's misogynistic? 
I have. Yeah. <laughs> on multiple occasions. Right. <laughs> oh, I'm so the, yeah. That's one of the that's one of the the most um, prominent um um let's say misconceptions about the Bible. You know, that the Bible speaks about putting women down. And there are a lot of scriptures that look as though that's what's being spoken about, you know. Like when Paul spoke, I think it's in Corinthians, when he said, the women must not speak in the church. They must not speak, they must be quiet. And only the men speak, <laughs> you know. And he said, the women must cover their hair. You see, like I said, when one approaches a new kind of people, when one approaches a new kind of people of a different cultural background of a different psychological type, it will profit us to seek to understand their culture, to seek to understand their psychology before we interpret what they are saying. And that's a mistake we as people generally make on a normal basis. I meet a person for the first time, you know. I look at the words they say, I listen to the words they say, I look at the actions that they do, and I judge them, not based on who they are, but based on my memory of people who have acted like this before. True or false? True, True. 100%. You know? Oh, it's like you're projecting on them your experiences. Exactly, you're projecting your experiences on them. So it's very possible that what this person, for example, now let me be honest with you, if I meet a person that talks fast, I don't trust them. <laughs> I don't trust them. If I meet a person that their mouth is just doing, because back in the day, there was one particular guy from uh, Somalia who swindled me, and that boy was a fast talker. Ever since then, any boy that talks fast, I'm just so wary. <laughs> but jokes, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but yeah. Going through life based on our different um, life encounters or different experiences, it's very natural that we've created different kinds of biases for different kinds of gestures, for different kinds of circumstances, that if it happens, Efumi, you talk fast, you see, the, let's just thank the Holy Spirit for giving me the sermon. <laughs> I judged you in the beginning. <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> so, um, so, um, when we go through life from our different experiences, you know, we develop different types of biases for certain things. And when we see a person, because for example now, sorry if you think I'm stretching, it's very important that um, I lay this kind of foundation because so that the whole topic is very much understood. For example, we say we love people. Oh my God, I just met this guy. Oh man, this guy is the guy of my dreams. I'm in love and you know. But the truth is, why did you say that you're in love? Probably because, probably because the guy in front of you or the girl in front of you is a reflection of all your past desires, of all your past wishes, 
for the longest time, you're fantasized about a six foot two guy with a very white smile and a dark face with a full beard, and you know, one who just knows how to sweet talk and one who has a nice car and good. All these ideas that has been cultivated for so long. You know, for guys, you know, you just like this girl who's just reserved, who is very smart and intelligent, who is beautiful but humble. You know, all these different ideas that we have. And when we meet a person, who reflects our ideas to us, we say, I'm in love. But are we actually in love with that person or we're in love with ourselves? I'm asking. I'm asking. Self-love seems most likely. Yeah. And that's why all this love at first sight, it dwindles. If it doesn't dwindle, it is challenged. Because you, you meet a person who they reflect all your fantasies and that gets you mesmerized. And then you say, I like this person. But as you start to get to know them and the real them starts to come out, that's where you and that person start to clash a lot. And they start to tell yourself, oh man, you've changed. You know what I thought? But actually, it was imagination that made one to think that this person was everything like our own imagination. Exactly. They never changed. That was who they were, but we didn't see it because we approached them with our own desires. Our desires were like goggles in our eyes that we used to perceive them. And when who they really were started to come out, we were so repulsed. For the fact that, they, that we were repulsed, it means that we never really love them. Because you can't love something that you don't know. And this includes ourselves. Because we think we know ourselves. But every day, when we meet different kinds of people, we see different aspects of ourselves coming out, good, or, good and bad. Is that true or false? True. Very true. You know? So as we meet different people in different, you know, you know, from different walks of life, we see different aspects of ourselves come out that surprise us. Sometimes we're surprised that, oh, you could be this kind. Sometimes we're surprised that we could be this rude, you know, because it takes an external thing to extract that which is inside of you, but conceal. So generally, we approach things, we approach people with a veil. It's as though I'm standing in front of a person, right? But between me and that person is a mirror. And I'm interpreting them through this mirror, which I'm using to see myself. So all the time, I'm telling this person, I'm looking at you, but the truth is, I'm only looking at myself. And everything that person says or does to me is translated through this lens of myself, of this me, myself, and I. If we're honest, how many of us are guilty of Yeah, very true. Can I ask a question though? So, for example, if you're dealing with somebody, yeah, and um, hmm, so me, I'm like you said, I smile a lot, right? But then I meet people that are just very deadpan, and so my my first impression is they must not like me very much. Do you get what I mean? Because they don't, they're not as animated as I am, that kind of thing. So is that an example Mm. of what you're saying that we're seeing? what we want to see from them. Absolutely. That's why I gave the example of that, my black American friend, who didn't used to smile. But that doesn't mean he didn't love you. You know, he was always happy to be around. He just didn't smile. 
and he just didn't jump around. Like me, I'm very animated, you know? So I was like a weirdo, <laughs> you know, to him. And he 100% was a weirdo to me because like, I was like, what kind of person is that? Can you just, you just front your face the whole day, you know? So obviously that was me um, judging him from my own psychological standpoint. And just like you said, you look at people, why didn't they smile like that? You're also judging them from your psychological standpoint. Because the reason why you smile is as a result of where you come from, from your experiences, from your upbringing, from your background. The reason why they frown is a result of where they're coming from, from their upbringing, their background, etc. So, like I said, this is how on a normal day, on a normal basis, we approach things and we approach people. And that's why misinterpretation happens so easily. It's so easy to misread people's intentions. It's so easy to mis mis misread people's true, true intentions for good and for bad because we measure them based on what we have experienced. Some of us who grew up, quote unquote, sheltered, no one lied in the house, no one stole anything, no one did anything. When we get exposed to the first time, we will just get swindled all over the place. True or false? And those of us who grew up feeling unsafe, who growing up we were cheated by a number of people, we were lied to, we were abused by different people in different situations, we grew up with a strong sense of insecurity. And it's very possible that we might enter a place that is very safe, but because we're so used to not being safe, we treat those people as though they're trying to hurt us. True or false? I agree with that, yeah. And this is just a fundamental thing that we as people do. And it's something that we have to work our way out of seeing the whole world from the perspective of me, myself, and I. And that perspective of me, myself, and I is why the Bible is one of those books that has been very misinterpreted. Because people approach it with the mindset of me, myself, like I said, different people, different cultures, all of them, we can have five cultures who have all experienced five sets of realities. But because they are of a different kind, they are of a different mindset, they are of a different psychological type, those five sets of realities, they will use five sets of different symbols to communicate those realities. And when you look at their symbols, you will think, my goodness, these people, they are like heaven and earth division. Not realizing that the issue there is that this one just symbolizes reality this way, and this one symbolizes this reality that way. And if you approach a new culture without trying to understand what this symbol means to them, the chances of you misunderstanding what they have to say to you are very high. To some people, the color red is a symbol of vigor, of strength, of vibrance, of life. To some people, this color red is a symbol of death. It's a symbol of the end. 
Now, if you are used to seeing the color red as a symbol of death and the end, when you approach a culture and for them, the symbol, the color red is symbolizing vibrant life and they have red all over, the, all over, all over the place. How would you feel if you enter into that kind of place? I'm asking. Very, very elusive. Sacrifice. You'll be thinking it's to do. You understand? <laughs> You'll be very terrified. You know, children said I will run. <laughs> I probably will run too. <laughs> you know, it is very terrifying because from where you're coming from, red is not a good thing. I know from us in Africa, especially, you know, red, anything red is just, seriously, you keep that from me right now. <laughs> you know? So when one approaches a different culture, who have a different psychological type and a different mindset, the mistake, the biggest mistake one can make is interpreting their symbols from your own psychological standpoint or from the symbols of your own culture. Misinterpretation is guaranteed. So in the Bible, for example, you know, because we started with um, we started with um, misogyny. But before we go forward, does anyone have any questions, comments that they would like to um, give or make? Anyone question, comment? Okay, fantastic. So now, when we go into the Bible, for example, a very beautiful symbol in the Bible is the woman. You see, I want to tell us that um, today's conversation is not a Bible study, you know. Because God wants us to understand in this moment, in this time, the spirit behind the doctrine. So that's why oftentimes like me so far so good. I think we had like two Bible studies and most times we're just having overview discussions, overview discussions. Because when we start to understand the spirit of the doctrine, when we start to understand the ideological framework of the doctrine, when we look into the stories, we can easily pick out what is going on, what is going on. So for example, an ideological framework that we can have, God is a God that tears down what is useless. And it tears down, I'm already talking about symbols now, so guys, let's pay attention. God is a God that tears down what is useless. And when he tears down what is useless, it's because he wants to build up what is useful. Similar to a forest, because you see, when we talk about God, God is the one who created the entire universe, you see. So it is not possible for someone to come and say, I am the mind of God. I am the mind of the whole universe. I am the mind of creation. And the things they do will not mirror that which has already been established in nature. Because nature is the first Bible that we have. There is no scripture in this world that exists that you cannot explain through nature. This is a 100% fact, not one. Even when we talk about the cross, the cross he sits on the sun every day. The sun every day teaches us about the cross. Because the sun is up there in space. 
burning, 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 not for itself, but for you. His entire life and existence is sacrificial so that you can be energized, so that you can keep moving. It's literally shedding his life every day for you. And of course, when God appears, of course he will use the sun as a symbol to represent himself. Because the sun is a living sacrifice. Do we understand that? Do we understand that? Yes. Yes. Yeah? Yes. So, ideologically speaking, in nature, when we observe how nature really functions, whenever something new is about to come into existence, that which was old must first be torn down. And of course, we have the very popular analogy of the caterpillar, which inside of the cocoon dies to the life of the caterpillar before it can begin the life as a butterfly. For those of us who are in countries that are up north, where we have the full four seasons expressed, we see the spring when the trees start to grow again and they show their vibrant orange colors. And then comes summer when the colors become green and rich and full of um, chlorophyll. Then comes autumn when they start to die again. Then comes winter when everything dies and the whole forest is dead and there are no leaves of the tree, and it looks as though everything is over. Then what happens next? Spring comes again, and the leaves start to grow, and everything starts to regenerate, and that's how it goes on year after year, year after year, year after year. We can look at spring like the birth. We can look at summer like the maturity. We can look at autumn like the old age. We can look at winter like death. And after that comes, another birth happens. Because in creation, nothing really dies in the sense that it ceases to exist. Things only change from one form to another. That's why a forest, for example, for it to continue existing, for it to be perpetually active, it has to burn in the air. Parts of the forest have to catch fire. It is very necessary that that happens. Because if you don't allow the forest to catch fire, you will threaten the entire life of the whole forest because there are some seeds that don't grow unless they are burnt. Are we aware of that? Are we following, better said? Are we following? Yes, yes, sir. Yes, yes, sir. yes I am. Exactly, yes. Zami. Energy cannot be created or destroyed or converted from one form to another. Albert Einstein gave a in his mind, he gave a very beautiful discovery, something that all oh, the wise men in three, four, five thousand years have been teaching, but we thank God for Albert Einstein. <laughs> you know. So this principle of chaos, this principle of death, this principle of construction, of destruction, preceding construction, is something that is evident in all of nature. So when we have this understanding that, that destruction comes before construction, chaos comes before creation, we then understand anywhere in the Bible that we see a kind of chaos happening. Oh, the Lord is going to come upon you and visit your children and burn this and burn that. If you follow the trajectory of that story, you will realize that what is being burned, what is being destroyed, what is being taken away 
is that which is impure, and what becomes, what rises out of that ashes is something beautiful. Now, if you approach the book of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, with that ideological framework, the books take a whole different meaning. How many of us grew up believing that the Old Testament God is a tyrant, a monster, and a killer? How many of us? Me! Mm. (laughs) 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 you know because when one approaches this story without the idea behind it without the philosophical framework behind it the chances of it being misinterpreted are very high and that is what has happened throughout scriptures you see different symbols because the stories themselves are symbols. I want us to understand, and it's something that I would like us to know in this very moment, and we must not forget. The Bible is not a history book. It is not a history book. They were not writing it to tell us what was happening. The Bible is a book of now. It always speaks about what happens now. It speaks of the internal realities internal realities of a person. The writers of the Bible, and it's very common, especially in the Middle East, in the Middle Eastern culture. I want to say Middle Eastern culture, I'm talking about everyone who is around that area. Is something, one of us is them, but anyone who develops the spirit of wisdom. They know how to twist stories, twist them, twist them, twist them, and turn it around to create a parable to create a story that can teach you something important. That's why Jesus Christ came and he said the parable of the sower, the parable of the rich man, the parable of love. He just came up with different stories. Who knows if those stories actually happened exactly as he narrated it? But that won't be the point. Because the point is not whether it happened historically the way he narrated it. The point is that, the point is that, the significance of that narration applies to us in this day, yesterday, and tomorrow. Do we understand that? Yeah. Yes, I do. Yeah. I do. Huh? Yes. So, the way the Hebrews write their stories, you know, the way the Hebrews write their stories, yes, Leia, God is a good, God is a good father. God is a good father. The way the Hebrews write their stories, they borrow elements of history and they twist and turn it and hide their wisdom inside. If one is following their stories like history, you will see contradiction left, right, center, back, front, true or false. Have you not seen many contradictions in the Bible? Yeah. Seemingly, seemingly, seemingly. Plenty of contradiction is there. Even Matthew, Matthew, Luke, and John, I don't know contradiction in those four in those four stories. Yes, yes. You see? Yeah. The the body of the story can contradict itself, but the spirit of the story can never contradict itself. Because the body is but a vessel, a shell that encapsulates a life which they have an intention of sharing with you. And if one is so fixated on the shell, if one is so fixated on the container, if one is so fixated on the bottle, one will miss the essence within the bottle. And that's why when the Mashiach 
the Messiah, the Christ, appeared in a form that was different to how he appeared in times past, they could not recognize him because they were used to a different kind of vessel, but not the essence. And that's why when the essence took a new form, they said, this cannot be, and they killed him. This is what happens when one is so fixated on the form, one is so fixated on the representation, one is so fixated on the symbol that they cannot see the essence behind the symbol. They cannot see the reality behind the symbol. Because the symbol doesn't have any kind of existence without the reality that is attached to it. You know? The reason why happy has some kind of existence is because that word happy can be attached to an internal feeling that we have. True or false? Assuming I just put together strange letters, strange letters that you cannot attach to any reality, they won't make any sense to you. So that tells you that a symbol is only of relevance if it has a reality attached to it. The reality is what gives the symbol life. The reality is the point. And oftentimes, people are so, are so fixated on the symbol. They are so fixated on the representation of the reality that they disregard the reality itself. You know. And that's why in the book of Ezekiel, we're already talking about symbols, and I hope we're, you know, because what I'm doing now, I'm trying to give us an ideological framework to approach the Bible so that when we study, we can get more out of it, you know. And we'll talk about one or two stories, but I really want us to start to have a fresh idea of how to approach these things so that we can extract by ourselves, that the Holy Spirit can teach us on our own, because now we're beginning to break those barriers that we have put up as a result of us approaching the Bible from our own cultural and psychological mindset. You know. So read the book of Ezekiel. Read the book of Isaiah. Oh, you people have sinned against me. Oh, you wayward nation, adulterous people. Now I will send my wrath upon you. You will drink the wine. You see, we read all those things. I will say, this God must be mad. <laughs> you know. But when we look into the essence of that story, when we look into the essence of that story, we see a loving father who looks upon his child, who looks upon his children, and he sees that they are sick. Because for me to get up and take a knife and stab my neighbor, I have to be sick. I have to be blind for me not to know that my neighbor and I are two parts of one whole. I have to be blind because modern science is just discovering that human beings and trees are not two separate organisms. Human beings and trees are one organism with two parts because what do you think will happen to humanity if all the trees are cut down? What do you think will happen? 
Mine's going to die. No oxygen and we die. Everyone is dead. You know, if all the trees are cut down, everyone is dead. Because you are the tree and the tree is you. And if you hurt the tree, you inevitably hurt yourself. You get what I'm saying? So when God looks at the people who are hurting everything in their environment, including themselves, it is very obvious these people are blind. It is very obvious these people are sick. Now what does he have to do? He has to heal them. He has to cleanse them. And that's when we see the wrath of God coming down. Because the wrath of God is the medicine of God. It's the healing of God. It comes to strip away that which is impure. So that that which is pure comes out. Because purity is a natural state of existence. Impurity is an abnormality. When impurity is cut away, all that is left is purity. Because purity is a natural state of existence. And that's why whenever we see God goes through all this destruction and chaos and blah, 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 he always leaves a remnant. And that remnant is symbolic of the aspects within yourself that actually look like God. Aspects within yourself that actually look like you. Aspects of love. Aspects of temperance. Aspects of patience, of perseverance. And the fire comes to burn away the pride which does not look like you, which does not look like God. Because you and God are two halves of one coin. Anything that does not look like God does not look like you. You know? Anything that does not look like God does not look like you. So God is trying to make you look like yourself. God is trying to make you look like him. And that's why when Jesus Christ came, he kept on saying, do you not know that the Son of Man can forgive sins on the earth? Do you not know that the Son of Man can do this, can do that? Because he wanted to show us what a real human being looks like. That was his intention, to show us what a human being is like. Because obviously, from the way we've been acting, we've been acting less than a human being. And when the fire of God comes, when the wrath of God comes, when the love of God comes, it has an intention to remove all those things that don't look like us so that that which we are can remain. And that's why we read those stories and we see, we see, we see, we see that everything gets destroyed, everything gets tarnished, but what remains is the remnant. This is a reality that happens on the inside of you. All those stories talk about what happens on the inside of you. And anyone who walks with God, this is exactly how the journey is. He will definitely clean you through different circumstances, different trials that are going to bring out those qualities that are against you. Because God is not against any man. God is against what is against man. And that is a sinful nature. Because it's a sinful nature that is killing us. When we walk around with bitterness and grief and unforgiveness, it is like a cancer in the emotions. It is like a cancer in the mind. It is destroying us. So when God is telling you, I hate this, it's not you that he hates. He hates the thing that hates you. Because you see, that anger, that bitterness that we hold on to like a best friend, that we think is our brother, that we think is our sister, is our greatest enemy. 
And that's why when Jesus Christ came, he said, do you think I came to bring peace on the earth? No, I came to bring division. I will separate mother from daughter and father from son and brother from sister. These are the things he's talking about. Because we have become brothers and sisters with things that are destroying us. And we hug anxiety like a friend. We hug depression like a friend. We hug unforgiveness like a friend. Did I tell a lie? I'm asking. No. That's why it's painful to separate from sin because you've bonded with the sin. Exactly. So God doesn't make anybody to suffer. We suffer because we do not want to separate from that which does not benefit us. You know? When we've held on to pride for so long, when it has become our identity, it has become who we are. When a humbling situation happens, we say, my God, God is punishing me. My God is suffering so much. God is not making anybody to suffer. We suffer because of our attachment to certain things. That is what causes pain. You see? And that's what Jesus Christ meant when he said, I have come to bring the vision. Mother against son. Mother against daughter. Father against son. Brother against sister. That's why he said the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Dividing asunder. Joint from marrow. Soul from spirit. You know. Because there are many things that we have attached ourselves to. There are many things that we have become married to. Just for those of us who are part of the conversation of the nature of sex, when we're explaining how sex transcends that which is physical, it's true, like I said, we're born with a lot of things. So in a sense, the spirit of lust, the spirit of anger, the spirit of jealousy, is like a living personality inside of us that we have bonded with that we have married, right? And when we marry something, that thing begins to implant its word into our heart by telling us, hey, 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 hey. See what this person said. You must react like this. You cannot take that from there. You see, that's a seed that is implanted into your heart. Now, the moment that seed is planted in your heart and you allow it to fructify and you give birth, this is what James meant when he said, when desire had conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, fully grown, gives birth to death. Because like we discussed in the previous um, discussions, and for those of us who are here for the first time, we can check the podcast. We have it all recorded. Um, um, psychologically speaking, when we are associating with our depression, we are associating with this unforgiveness. It's a spirit that we are married to. This is what people are calling spiritual husband. You know, the thing is that if you open, if you look into the realm of the spirit, that is how it look like. It's not some fantastical thing. Everybody has it. For the fact that every day I'm still losing temper, I'm still in pride. It tells me that I am married to something other than God. And that's why in the Old Testament, you see God is always calling Israel, "Oh Israel." You harlot, you have prostituted yourself with every lover on the street. These lovers are the spirit of anger, the spirit of greed, the spirit of strife. And that's why Paul said in Corinthians chapter 11, 
verse 1 and 2. He says, Ah, I wish to present you as a chaste virgin to Christ your husband. But I fear, lest as the devil beguiled Eve, he will also corrupt your mind. Because the soul, the mind, is like a woman. Now you see, we're still, like I said, it's the whole circle, you know. The mind is like a woman, which receives, because in Greek, when we see the word seed, literally, the Greek word for seed is sperma. It's as plain as that. When they talk about seed, the literal word in Greek is sperm. So when they say the seed of God is in you, the literal word is the sperm of God is in you. So when a person is always listening to the voice of the flesh, of the serpent, or listening to the voice of anger, of strife, of impatience, of I'm not good enough, of no one will accept me, of no one needs me. That is the kind of spiritual husband that we have. And every time we hearken to his voice, and every time we believe that which it says, that is the sexual intercourse. And when we express the nature of that thing, that is what it means to give birth to sin, which James spoke about. And we do this on a daily basis. Did I tell a lie? No. You know? No. So when the Bible says that the woman must not speak in the congregation, that the woman must cover her head for the man to speak, this man is Christ. We, the woman, the soul, the mind, must be silent. We must be subjugated. We must allow him to impregnate our minds, that out of us might be born the children, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, that we might express his nature. This is what Paul was teaching, you see. But when we read that, in 2020, when there's so much, uh, you know, feminists and, you know, everyone is trying to, you know, the egalitarian wars, then we'll think that, oh my God, Paul is a misogynist. And they will misinterpret the pure and sincere word of God. You know. So to me, I said, when Paul talked about how the woman was not speaking the congregation and she must cover her hair for only the man speaks. That man being spoken of is Christ, our husband, and we the bride. And we are supposed to be subjected to him. We are supposed to allow his seed, his word, to impregnate us, that we may give birth to the fruits, the children of the Holy Spirit. Because when Christ says to us, hey, you see what has happened there? Yes, 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 you see, yes, yes, we know what that person said, but you go apologize. Now, that is a seed that is planted in your heart. When you listen to that seed, when you allow it to work in your heart, and you act out the word he implanted inside of you, you have given birth to a child of Christ. You have given birth to a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And this is something that ought to happen from moment to moment, from moment to moment, from moment to moment. Because oftentimes, if we observe ourselves, if we observe our thoughts, our feelings, and actions, usually we give birth to the children 
of other lovers. You know. Pumilaya, you have a question? Yeah, I do. So, if you said that the woman represents us, right, and the man represents Christ, but my question is, why didn't they just say that? Like, why did you have to say it that way? Because that's just caused a lot of misunderstanding. Do you get it? You're like not... looking at them with your own mindset. Do you see what I'm saying? Huh? You're saying, why are they not talking like you? That's what you're saying, isn't it? I mean... Uh, uh-huh. That's what you're saying. You say, why are they not talking like you? Why are they not being clear? I think that's, that's the question. Okay. But doesn't that... Doesn't that go back to what we said about how you can't use your own mindset to interpret the Bible? So we think exactly. it's not clear because that's not how we think. But that, exactly. that's probably how they thought. So it was probably very clear to them when it was written. Fair enough. Fair enough, sis. Yeah. Exactly. You know, a few days ago, I was asking God. I said, dear father, why do you conceal things? I know what he said to me. Oh, it's, it's your question. Um, Olamide, your voice isn't so clear. Your voice is cracking. Maybe write the question in the comment box. Olamide, your voice isn't clear. Maybe write the question in the comment box. Um, sorry. Aha, uh -huh, I can hear you now. Can I ask something, please? Of course. Absolutely. Okay. Okay, so I wanted to ask, I've heard it said about this part in the Bible you are referring to, that Paul was writing to a particular church, I think in Corinth, I think it was mentioned in Corinthians, and I was writing yes. it because the women, the women in the church in Corinth were very contentious. So they were very mm -hmm. argumentative, and they were causing disorder in the church. So it, that was why it was writing that part of the scripture that talks about women um, keeping quiet and just if they have anything um, contentious to say, they should hold on till they get home and speak to their husband. So I just wanted to ask, I just wanted to clarify that. I perfectly understand what you said. I just wanted a clarification. Yeah. So which, which interpretation are we going with um, for this class? So I want to understand something, right? There did happen many thousands, if not million years ago, a mighty flush, which completely enveloped this planet. This is something that is recorded in over 400 different cultures. So it's not only the Bible that talks about the Great Force. About 400 different cultures talk about it. And they talk about how a select group of people came out from the flood and stuff like that. So it's a historical fact, backed up by many different people, you see. However, when Moses wrote about that flood and the ark and all these things, it, he, he, it goes much beyond what literally happened. You know. He used that historical context as a fabric by which he knitted the divine wisdom which he was going to push forward for posterity. Paul knew very well when he was writing to the Corinthians that he was addressing things that were happening in that time. But he also knew that that which he was writing was going to transcend that time. And there are going to be people in the future 
who will read this and will still be able to extract knowledge that will be relevant to them in their time. So every single one of those stories we see, because people think that the allegorical way of writing ended in the Old Testament. Not so. Not so. It's the way the Hebrews write. Like Jesus Christ, he stood in front of a temple and he said to them, Hey, tear down this temple and in three days I will lift it up. You see, they were blind in understanding. They didn't understand what he said. And they misinterpreted him and said, Blasphemy! Something that was built in 46 years, you say, you say, um, you say, something that was built in 46 years, you say that you rebuilt it in three days. Um, oh, yes, this is my memory. Yes, yes, I'll get back to that. Um, so, um, Olamide asked, what does allegorical way of writing mean? Please, fantastic question you asked. Jesus Christ stood in front of the disciples after administration and he said, unless ye eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of God. Now, the people who heard him say that, because their mindset was so fixated on the flesh and they did not know that a spirit was speaking as spirit, they assumed that that man in front of them was inviting them to cannibalism. So I'm asking, Olamide, was he inviting them to cannibalism? No, he wasn't. He wasn't. But he spoke in a way that he, he, he didn't let them know the difference, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You see, so that right there is the answer to your question. That is an example of allegorical speech. And the Hebrews are doing it. That's how they talk. Why? Why? I'll get to that. Let me finish the thing I was saying before. So, so, um, I was saying earlier that I asked God, I said, Dear Father, why do you conceal things? And he said to me, I don't conceal anything. Everything is there in plain sight. It's just that people can't see. So what is happening now is me opening your eyes to see what has always been there. So from God's perspective, nothing is hidden. And that's why Christ is called a revelation, an unveiling of something that has always been there that we were unable to see. So nothing is hidden. Even if we say it's hidden, it's not. It's just that we're blind. And that's why Christ comes. You say, oh, my eyes have been opened. Because the physical eyes are not the only eyes that a person possesses. So why do the men of wisdom, the prophets, speak this way? You know, um, I'm going to put a link. I'm going to put a link on the group chat for. I'm going to put the link to our group chat for those of us who want to um, get the um, the previous materials that we've had. So. You can just follow that link and then I would, um, it's only just reminding me now that, um, so, so for the, our previous materials, you can, you can request for it on there. So that, um, because what we're talking about today is a, is a progression from many other things and it will be, be much better for you if you have a much more robust 
understanding. So yeah. Um, so why do these people, these spiritual people, these mystical people, speak in this manner? How can they stand in front of a building and say, tear this thing down and I'll rebuild it in three days? But he was not speaking about the physical building. He was speaking about himself. Because nature in itself is one great analogy. Even if we can't see it, everything is connected to everything. Everything is associated with everything. Has anyone of us heard about what is, what is called the butterfly effect? Yeah. You know? Yes, yes. You know? When they talk about how a thing done in one part of the world undoubtedly would affect something at the other side of the world and things like that. But before we go forward, uh, Mercedes, you have a question. Hi. Yeah, my question was just um, in regards to what you just said about how you asked God why things were hidden and he said things were not in, not in fact hidden. But then what do you say about the scripture that talks about how God has um, in second, I actually have to pull it up, so I'm not just saying it from my of head, course. but first Corinthians, um, two verse 10, um, 10 to, to the end to 16, where he talks about how God has hidden, like the spirit touches all things, even the deep things of God for who, who else knows the person's thoughts except their spirits. And it says that, um, what we have received is not the spirits of the world, but the spirits who is from God, so that we may understand what God has has freely given to us. Um, yes. I'm basically just saying how things are, um, that only the Spirit can explain the spiritual realities, but in reality that he did it this way so that we cannot discern it by ourselves. So then how do you yes. reconcile that with that statement? Absolutely. Because when we look at the Bible and we look at things of God, it's a paradox. Yeah. On one hand, we can say, that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. On another hand, we can say the actions that they did invited destruction upon themselves. True or false? True. You know? So, their destruction was not separate from the actions that they were doing. So, on one hand, we can say God destroyed them, on the other hand, we can say they destroy themselves because both are true. Both are dependent on one another. So yes, we say God hid something, right? But it's hidden because of our incapacity to see. And that's why when God appears, what happens? He opens our eyes. Because perceiving the divine, perceiving the pure and bountiful state of God is what is natural. What is unnatural are the different blankets we put upon our eyes through the, different, through the sinful nature that we have adopted. Every time we make an action opposite to the will of God, we build, will I say, veils upon our eyes that keep us away from Him, that blind us from Him, that make His ways seem as though they are not present, that make His ways become hidden. So on one hand, we can say God hid it. On the other hand, we can say we're blind. 
on one hand we can say god on one hand what well, is a lot of stuff going on in the chat see on one hand we can say um um on one hand we can say on one hand we can say um god kicked adam and eve out of the garden on another hand we can say they kicked themselves out because them being kicked out was dependent on an action that they did does that help you mercedes Sorry, yes, I was typing, but yes, it does help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Amazing. Amazing. Yes, it makes complete sense. Thank you. Amazing. You're welcome. Um, Amarachi, you have a question? Yes. Yeah, so basically, um, you know, we're talking about how, um, you know, we're talking about God concealing things or it's seeming as though God conceals things. And you were just talking about how um, it's more, more or less a matter of our perspective. Um, but like there's this particular scripture, I think it's Proverbs 25 verse 2 that talks about how it is the glory of God to conceal a thing and yes. something of men to search it out. That's one of the questions um, that I had. And then my one, another comment I wanted to make talking about what you were saying about the, um, the veil, because I know that Paul wrote, I think in first Corinthians three or so, he was talking about how when the prophets of old wrote scriptures, they were writing with a veil because their face was closed. And then now with the coming of Christ, things have been opened to us and things have been revealed. So we have a better perspective of the meaning of scripture. Yes. He didn't say the, prophets wrote with a veil he mm -hmm. said the people because yeah. when moses came down from the mountain the glory was too much for them to receive and in in if i'm if i'm if i'm going to use this in a very relatable sense let me give you an example of mm -hmm. of glory that is too much to receive god will come to you and say amarachi listen to me my daughter what will be the paramount will what will be my paramount will for you is that you go to that part of the world and in that part of the world the message that you preach there will have you killed in eight months can you do it ah! you hear that so you say jesus god i have a 10-year career plan what do you mean by this no 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 you know now because of that you will have to veil that will for you and then he now gives you a 10-year plan which is less than the original one but the one that you can manage does that make sense yeah that's an idea of veil when one is not able to take on the full capacity of the life mm -hmm. because the full capacity of the life will always have you give something because light always gives you see so if people who are too hard are people who are unable to give you know okay it doesn't make sense okay so two people said it doesn't make sense let me explain myself again i'm not trying to have us understand the idea of something when moses came down from the mount sinai his face was radiating with the effulgent glory of god and it was so bright that the people said oh 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 oh, oh we cannot look at your face and for that reason he had to veil himself because the glory was too much for them to carry. I'm not trying to explain what that symbol can look like in a very simple sense. That story is a transcendental story. 
and talked about things on many layers. I'm just trying to bring it to a layer that we can understand on a daily level. Look at you, for example, Shay, who said, can you repeat? And Spicy, who says it doesn't make sense. You could be having a quarrel with your friend, right? And you know very well that that person is wrong. However, if in that moment, you can allow yourself to be the sacrificial lamb, you would teach that person something that they had never learned, which would change their life. It will, however, cost you your pride. When your pride is too great, you say, ah, God, this life is too much for me. I cannot do that one. Then God will have to dim that life and give you something simpler. Do we understand that analogy? Yeah, huh? yeah, get it. Yes. Yeah, all of us. Yeah? Spicy, shaggy, you understand the analogy? Yeah. Fantastic, fantastic. Yes, Mercedes, you used the perfect word when you said duality. That is the, that's the word that describes it best, duality. It is, that's just what it is. You know. So yes, like I said, we're already talking about symbols, so I hope you guys are following because we've talked about a number of symbols. We've talked about the woman, we've talked about, um, we've talked about the destruction, that's death and rebirth, you know, the chaos in the book of Isaiah, Ezekiel, when God says, I'll destroy you, I'll destroy you, and then from the destruction comes a construction. That's another symbol. So I want us to take note of the different symbols we're speaking about. Now, we just spoke about the Moses symbol of the veil, which blinded his eyes. Now, in this moment, the Holy Spirit has taken me to the book of Genesis. And if we want, we can pull out the scripture, you know. When God, after God called Abraham, after God called Abraham out of, out of um, his father's house. Um, yes, I'm actually, that's the scripture, but the people's minds were hardened, exactly. The people's minds were hardened. Not the prophets. Because a lot of people make the mistake, and they say the prophets were blind. How can they see? Such a statement is, it's, it's, please let it be far away from us. Of course they knew what they were talking about. It's the people whose hearts were hardened, you know. The prophets knew exactly what they were saying. But anyway, so we have another symbol now. In the book of Genesis, and, you know, we read it about Abraham. God called him out of his father's house to take him into a land that he will show him. One read this story. And one would think that it's just a historical account of a man traveling from one country to another country. But it's beyond that. It's way beyond that. It speaks about a spiritual transition. When God called Abraham out of his father's house, this is what Peter spoke of when he said, and he called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The father's house is representative of the flesh, of the carnal nature, of the world which Abraham was indulged in. Me, myself, and I, flesh, conceitedness, and all these things. Lawlessness. That's what it meant when he said, Abraham, get up out of your father's house and begin to journey. 
Now, and the Bible wrote, and I'm saying, and the reason why I'm not bringing up scriptures is because I actually want us to go and study. So everything I'm saying now, it will only profit you if you study. If you don't study, it's just going to be information, you know. He called Abraham out of his father's house, which is symbolic of the carnal nature, symbolic of the flesh, symbolic of sin, and he put him on a journey. Exactly. The journey is another symbol, you know. Because people think, oh, once God has called you out, everything is set. Oh, his life doesn't, life doesn't ever work that. Because salvation is a journey. It's a process. We're going somewhere. And that's why when we read the Bible, we see that they are always, the Israelites are always moving, moving. Just look at the whole Old Testament. It's always some motion. Whenever there's a problem is when they stop moving. That's when there's an issue. Because scientifically speaking, energy is motion. It's movement. It's life. Just like the blood in your veins, it's motion. The moment blood stops flowing in your veins, then a clot happens. And that clot starts to bring death into existence. Because pure life is motion. And stoppage is death. So we see the whole Israelites always moving, 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 moving. And each movement is always from either glory to glory or glory to grass. You know. So Abraham got out of his father's house. And set on a journey to the land that God will show him. And something very peculiar was there in that story. It was written, and Lot was with him. You know, Lot was his nephew, who, because of his incapability to have a son at that time, he raised as his own son, and he kept Lot. Now, all the while Abraham was on this journey, Lot was always with him, Lot was always with him, Lot was always with him. Interestingly, and this is the way we can start to read the Bible, the meaning of the name Lot is veil. Did we know that? The name Lot literally means veil, blindfold, yeah, yeah. covering yeah, on the eyes. That's the meaning of Lot. Abraham could not see the promised land so long as he still had Lot with him, the veil. And that's why when he climbed the mount, what's the name of this mountain? Is it, um, what's the name of the mountain um, Abraham climbed again? Um, is it Mount Moriah? When he climbed Mount Moriah, I think Mount Moriah, I'm not sure. If someone knows, you can tell me, please. On that mountain was when he separated himself from Lot. The moment he separated himself from Lot. The moment he separated himself from the veil, what happened? He was written, and he lifted up his eyes, and he beheld the promised land. So as long as he still kept on holding on to that veil, that backup plan of his flesh, that, that symbol of his, own, of his own strength, it was impossible for him to see the promised land. The promised land was always there. The promised land is not about a historical thing. No, no, no. This, like I said, this story is a very spiritual, you know. And when one starts to read the symbols, it takes a whole level of meaning. It's not just, it's not just history. It speaks about spiritual transition. So long as Lot was still with Abraham, it was impossible for him to see the promised land. The moment Lot was severed from him, his eyes were lifted, and he saw the land. And if we read in the Bible, check it and write this down. Observe anywhere you see the right, and he 
lifted up his eyes. It's not a literal lifting up eyes. He speaks about transitioning from the eyes of the flesh into the eyes of the spirit. Because every time you see the Bible right, and he lifted up his eyes, they always perceive something that they never saw before. This is another symbol. You know? Exactly. So all these things, there was history to it, you know, but that history was taken and weaved to communicate all these mysteries. Abraham was who they called the first Hebrew. You know, interestingly, the word Hebrew literally means one who has crossed over. Crossed over what? The Jordan River. What is the meaning of the Jordan River? The Hebrew word Jordan, Yarden, literally means to descend. Jordan literally means to descend. It talks about a dying place. It talks about a crushing place. It talks about the end of me, myself, and I, and the beginning of Christ. So when they said Abraham crossed the river, to become a Hebrew. It speaks of the death of one thing and the birth of another. That's why whenever you see the Jordan River in a story, there is always the death of something and it's always the birth of something. Not just the Jordan River, but the waters in general. Because we can start all the way in Genesis in the flood of Noah. When you look at that story from the ideological framework, forget about the details now, but we're going to do this later. Look at the ideological framework. The world was full of darkness and sin and evil. And water came and washed away everything except that which was pure. It washed away everything except that which could not be washed away. The same analogy is used when the Bible talks about how only hay and stubble burns in the fire, but gold shines sure. So we see how the water and the fire are related to one another, symbolically speaking, including the cross. I hope it's not too much for <laughs> So the cross, the fire, the water are all related to the same thing, which is the perishing of one thing and the resurrecting of another. It's the same symbol all throughout the Bible. And that's why we see in the flood of Noah, a lot of things perished and a lot of things resurrected. The whole world died and all the sinners and all those people perished and Noah and his family came out. Also in the Red Sea, Pharaoh and the hordes of Egypt, of course it's been recorded, don't worry. Pharaoh and the hordes of Egypt drowned at the bottom of the Red Sea. The Israelites came out. The Israelites, just like Abraham, entered into the Red Sea as slaves. But when they came out, their captors died and they were free men. You understand? Because the Red Sea, the River Jordan, is representative of that place where God puts us in that moment where he removes something that is an impurity in us and he resurrects something that is pure in us. What are thoughts, comments, questions?
thoughts, comments, questions. Sorry, I have a question. Hmm. Um, it's you know, uh, um, some days ago I came across this Lord's wife thing. So I know it's not that you get play. I just figured maybe I could ask now. You know, I know. I don't know what's your take on the, the story of Lot's wife and turning back and pill off like salt. I'm sorry for digressing. Well, that story has been layered to it, but the, the easiest way to understand it is what Jesus Christ said when he said, Anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Do you understand? Because you began something that was liberating you, that was setting you free, that was putting you in motion. And then you look back to that thing that enslaved you. You become frozen. You become a pillar of salt. You go back to that. And that's why James spoke up in James chapter 1 when he said, who is the man who hears but does not do? He's like one who looks in the mirror. Then after a while, walks away forgetting who he was. That's what he speaks about that not five story. You know, someone who was on a particular journey out of captivity, out of bondage. God is bringing me out of that depression, you see. But there's some kind of pleasure in always saying, no one likes me, no one cares about me. There's some kind of pleasure in complaining. Please, let's be honest, has, there, has anyone of us felt that before? That pleasure to complain. Have you been there before? Yeah. yeah, you know, yes. especially especially in Nigeria, you know, if it's some of your suffering, they say, ah, you see, so you're suffering. Let me tell you of my own suffering. <laughs> They'll start to compare their suffering with you. <laughs> you know, say, ah, let me suffer, Pastor. Look, your suffering no risk. You know, there's a kind of pleasure there is in complaint, a kind of pleasure there is in pain, because of course, pain and pleasure are intimately related with one another. So in every painful moment, there's some kind of pleasure that one can attach to. And oftentimes, when God removes us from something, just like Lot's wife, we start to miss that pleasure of it. We start to miss that quote-unquote feeling. And then we look back, and then we enslave ourselves once more. This is what it means to become a pillar of salt. How many of us have been like that many times? It is a fact, every one of us, that's what happens a lot. We look back, we look back, you know, you know, uh -huh. that's what our story is talking about. And we once again shackle ourselves to something that God liberated us from. Returning back to that slavery he freed us from. This is something that happens a lot. And that's what happens with, that's what happens with us. So back to Abraham. The name Hebrew literally means he who has crossed over. And it's not a historical thing. It has never been a historical thing. Because Abraham is not really, yes, Abraham really existed, but Moses wasn't writing about the historical Abraham. He was writing about a spiritual principle. That's why they called him the father of faith. Because Abraham represents a person who has faith in God. And faith always expresses itself with action. And when God said to him, Abraham did. That is the definition of faith. Faith is like a cycle. It begins 
by hearing what God has said, and it is completed by doing what God has said. If one hears but does not do, they don't have faith. Because faith begins by hearing and is completed by the doing of that which one has heard. And Abraham represented that spiritual principle. He represented that kind of person. And that story was talking about a person who walked out of darkness into the marvelous light. And that's why the name Hebrew literally means crossed over. See, let me tell you, who knows if it literally happened? You know, I don't know. But that's not the point. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? That's not the point. Because it's, well, it's not the point. That's not what Moses was trying to communicate. It's beyond that. It could have happened like that, like that, and that would be fantastic. But it's beyond the point. Because you see, that pattern of the Red Sea, of waters, separating from waters, we see the same thing in Genesis chapter 1. When God separated the waters from above and the waters from below, and from there he brought forth the light. We see that analogy first of all in Genesis chapter 1. So that person of Red Sea, put question mark on it, based on historically being that way, you know. But whether it happened historically or not, that's not the point. The point is the pattern of the Red Sea that has to happen on the inside of you. That is always what matters. The reality that happens within you, that is always the point. Because great, I know about this one 5,000 years ago, great. But how does it change my present moment now? That is what matters. And when Jesus Christ came to his people then, they were so fixated on the historical account. They were so fixated on the history, the symbols. They forgot about the essence. And like I said, Abraham is not just a historical person. Abraham represents a spiritual principle. And because he represents a spiritual principle, that's why Jesus Christ said, that's why Jesus Christ said, Oh, Michael, you have confused me. <laughs> oh, my. Hold on, let me get my thoughts together. Oh, um, oh, what was I talking about again? Oof, Jesus. About how it was Abraham, was not Abraham does not represent a spiritual person. So it does not represent a natural person. Uh-huh. Because Abraham doesn't recognize a natural person, that's why Jesus Christ looked at people who were physical descendants of Abraham. But he said to them, you are not sons of Abraham. Because if Abraham, if you were truly sons of Abraham, you received my message. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced in it. These are people who are physical descendants of Abraham. But Jesus Christ is telling them, they're not sons of Abraham. What does that tell you? I'm asking. Let me see if you look reading this thing very well. What does that say about Abraham and the Hebrew? I'm asking. There's more yeah. of a spiritual concept than that a physical. That it was also a symbol of faith. 100%. It's more of a spiritual concept than it is physical. It has nothing to do with the people in the Middle East. Nothing. Moses just used that as a fabric to communicate a spiritual story. It had nothing to do with the historical Jews. Even all those stories where they say Egypt, Egypt, most of these things don't have anything to actually do with what really happened with Egypt in those days. I'm telling you because, you see, these things I'm saying now, it might sound strange, 
But by the time we actually spend time listening to the Jewish rabbis and actually look at their books like the Talmud and the, the Mishnah and all this, you know, the Midrash, you see, you, when you start to see how they actually write, ah, you start to question a lot of things. Ah, did this really happen like that? Because, you see, <laughs> oh my. The historical account is not the point. The symbol is not the point. The point is the reality that that symbol is communicating. That is what one must grab onto and latch onto because that's what's real. And that's what can transform. If one holds on to the symbol and forgets the reality, such a person, one day, one day, one day, one day, they will kill a Messiah because he will come in a different form that does not look like the form it came before, and we say this cannot be God. And we will say that because we don't know the essence. We're so used to a particular form of God. You see, I want us to imagine, think of God, think of an idea or image of God. I want us to do that for one second. Think of, put, a, put a, an image of God in your mind or what you feel God is like. Just do that for like five seconds. And maybe five people can tell me what is what God is today. Who wants to go first? What is God to you? I see that the man. Huh? When you think of God, what comes to mind? When I think of God, I think of lights, unapproachable lights, and I also think about um, the source of life. So like an energy that powers everything that we know to exist, and even the things that we can't see that also exist. Amazing, amazing. Thank you for that. Who else wants to go? Liz? Sorry, did you say Liz? Yeah, uh, your, your, your mic was unmuted. Oh yeah, that's that's true. Uh, when I think of God for me, I um, I can't I can't I can't I can't put it into words. Like my mind literally explodes. I, I I can't even put it into words. That's the truth. When I think about him, I think of so many different things that my mind literally explodes to think of somebody, something that is beyond absolutely everything. So I, I can't even put it into words when I think about God, to be honest, because the creator of creations, the creator of who we are, every, I mean, I, I can't even put it into words. I can't, seriously. It blows and, and my that, mind. That mind blown is actually the, that's the best answer one can give. Because any idea, any concept, any image, any idol that we have of God, God is beyond that. Yeah, you see, when, exactly. we talk about idol when we talk about idolatry, people think that uh, idolatry is just about putting a physical stone in front of us and bowing down to a physical stone. No, 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 no. Idolatry even goes up to ideas that we have about God, which becomes an idol. I've met people who have an idol of God. That God is always so mushy and sweet, and he is. You see, God has the side of him that is very motherly, very caring, very gentle, very sweet, very kind, which is the nature of the lamb. But do not forget that God is also 
a lion. And if we create that idol of God, oh my, my, see, for, I don't know about you, but to me, God is, let me, God is my, God is my, that, that becomes an idol. Now, when God tries to appear to you in a form beyond that idol that you have made, you say, this can't be God. And you kill the Messiah. Do we understand that? <laughs> yes. You know? So, idolatry goes beyond just putting a physical clay figure in front of us. It goes even to the point of the idea of God that we have. Because any form that God took on to meet your need or to meet you where you are is a limitation of himself. Any form that God takes is a limitation for your sake. When you say God is a healer, can someone be a healer if there is no sick? Question. No. So him being a healer is dependent on you being sick. Wait, hold on. Something's going on in the chat box, guys. Hold on. Let's try not to have so many arguments in the chat because, you know, it's so confusing. People, let me read it. God is love. He's a father. He loves us when we hate ourselves. God sees our heart and knows our deepest secrets and thoughts. Knows our thoughts. This is why sometimes you can't experience the hand of God because he's coming. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Oh, okay. I thought there was an argument. Okay, I was wondering because there's a lot of um, correspondence going on there. And it's a bit distracted, that's why. Um, so, um, when God calls himself a healer, he only calls himself a healer if we are sick, you know? There is no, there is no, um, Tim Lulua, don't worry, it's going to be recorded so you can, um, you can listen to it on the podcast. So, it's not lost by the grace of God. <laughs> But thank you for thank you for staying with us this long. Um, when God takes on the form, the identity of a healer, it's not because God is a healer; it's because we are sick. The nature of the healer comes into existence as a result of our sickness. Do we understand that? Yes. You know. Yeah. Yeah. True. Like some of us here, we are men, women. The moment we have a child, the father comes out. But before we had a child, we were something. You understand? So that father is just a limitation of what we are. It's something we have to become as a result of something else. We are not limited to father because we existed before we became father. You know? So, any form of God that we have in our minds, any form whatsoever, even if it's a picture of a Caucasian man with curly hair in blue and pink robes, I want us to understand that that is a limitation of God that he took on for our sake. Because God... (laughs) See, I don't suppose because I don't put a picture of the universe in my mind because God is this vastness of this entire creation, to limit him to just one, no, you know, God is beyond all forms and conceptions. He's beyond 
Anything that we can conceive in our mind is beyond it. Is beyond it. And the most, the most, um, well, God didn't come as a white man. He was from the Middle East. But we must understand that all these things are still formed. Because you see, some of us here now, you're also a form of God in the flesh. Because when you do the will of God, and you express the nature of God from yourself, then Christ has entered into the world again, and God has come in the flesh. So this white, black, Caucasian, I want us to throw this out of the way, because God is not limited to any race, he's not limited to any color, he's not limited to anything. He takes on those things for our sake. Jesus Christ is not limited to Hebrew language, you know. Hebrew language is new. It's only like 5,000 years old. Hebrew language is a child of the Phoenician language, which was the child of the Sumerian language. So we must understand, God is beyond all these things. So if God himself has been, I mean, <laughs> the Hebrew language came in, into existence around the time of Abraham. What did them Noah and Enoch and all these people call God, you see? So we need to understand that even the names that we even call him in this time, God is beyond all these names because all these names are just forms. They're just symbols that we're using in this time to talk about a reality that has always been long before all these symbols came into existence. You know, exactly Job, because Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Job existed long before Moses, older than Abraham, because there was a quote that Abraham made that was actually extracted from the book of Job. So that tells you that Job is older than Abraham. So what was Job? What was Job calling God? You know, Sorry, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Sorry, uh, this thing you just said now, because I just had I I was talk. Someone was talking to me about this thing about. Job and Abraham that Job was was way before Abraham because they call them the patriarchs like the patriarchs being that um, the times of um, Enoch Abraham and the likes and I was like oh really wow because I think what we're talking we're talking about the arrangements of the Bible why would Job the book of Job come at the point where it was it was supposed to come before Abraham but I think what you just shed now put more light on that thank you so much I know you're welcome, bro. You're welcome, bro. So, even the names that were calling God in this time, they are new names. I mean, look at the name Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not English origin. English language is 1,400 years old. Okay, the name Jesus Christ is gotten from Greek, from the word Jesus Christos. The Greek language is about 3,000 years old, you see. So, all even the names were calling him, these forms, these symbols, God is beyond that. You get my point? But the reality never changes. The symbol can change. The mode of expression can change. Exactly, Matthew, Matthew, and John, they're not English. The word John is Yohanan in Hebrew. Um, I'm not sure what Luke is. I'm not sure what Matthew or Mark is. But I know John is Yohanan, which means the Lord, the Lord, the grace of God. Yohanan means the grace of God. So all these names are not even English. So. But you see, that's, that's, that should tell you that even if the form changes, even if the symbol changes, today is water, today is agua, today is shui, today is omi, so long as the reality behind the symbol remains, it's the same thing, you know? So God came in the symbol of Ezekiel, took that form, and he spoke the message to the people at that time. They could not recognize him. They disregarded him. God came in the symbol of Isaiah. 
They could not understand him. They disregarded him. They cut him into two. Now, at the time of Jesus Christ, when they are reading about the people of the past, you know, they are so used to the symbol of Isaiah. They are used to the symbol of Ezekiel. They are used to the symbol of Elijah. When God came in the form, in the symbol of that man of Galilee, they couldn't understand because, because they did not know the essence. Mercedes, could you expand your question? When you said, are you referring to the son of man symbol? So um, in the Bible, there are people who they refer to as the son of man, or I think he's the son of... Yes. Yeah, so I'm saying that when you mention Elijah and Isaiah and, yeah. um, and also Abraham as well and Jesus as well and also John the Baptist were called yeah. son of man. Like, yeah. are you saying that those were the forms of God? Like, is that what you were just trying to explain right now? That's what I'm saying. 100%. The title son of, when it says son of man, son of man is actually a title. That one yeah, yeah, yeah. When they have to a degree incarnated the spirit of Christ. Yeah, inherit, like God in them, basically. Yes. Yeah. Jesus Christ of Galilee incarnated the Christ more than anyone before him, you see? But there have been others before him who had incarnated the Christ. Yeah, that were... That's why they say... Yes, exactly. exactly. That's why they say he has a name above all other names. Oh, other yeah. names. Yeah. And all those names are names of power. When you talk about a name, a name speaks of a dimension in God. Is the whole realm of existence. Is the whole world of its own. And anyone who attains that dimension, that is the, the take on that name, you know, but that would take us into a completely um, different facet, you know. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ of Galilee, incarnated the Christ in, to a degree that had never before happened the complete and perfect manifestation. But there are others who have incarnated, Moses incarnated the Christ. That's what happened on Mount, on, 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 on Mount Sinai, you know. Ezekiel incarnated the Christ. Ezekiel chapter two literally begins by saying, um, Ezekiel, the word of God came to me and he spoke to me and entered me. And I heard what he said. And he told me, son of man, get up and go out. You understand? And the word of God entered me. And Elijah, and he, so it's all over the Bible. So. Christ's coming didn't begin in the New Testament or what we call the New Testament. He has always been coming. It just happens so that in the time of Jesus, he came in a much complete and perfect form. But the Christ has been coming. Melchizedek too was the form of Christ. Abraham was the form of Christ. Joseph was the form of Christ. Daniel was the form of Christ. This was all Christ. You know? And whenever Christ appears, he always does the same work. And he's always killed. That's why they always kill the prophet. So it's the same. What happened with Jesus has been happening. Is that is the pattern? Because the Christ must give his life for the people. He must, his life must be served for the propitiation of sins. So it's always been like that. A man must stand in the gap. So when they say Jesus Christ stood in the gap for us, Abraham stood in the gap of Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you not remember? You know, Hosea stood in the gap of his people. So this is what the Christ has always been doing. It's not. It's not a New Testament thing. It's, that's why one has to go back to the Old Testament and actually study the pattern to see how it has been developing and unfolding up until the New Testament. So the Christ has always been coming. And the Christ is still coming. Because all of us here, 
to the different degrees we have incarnated the Christ in different ways and forms, you know, some more than others, some little, and it's it's all we all have it in different degrees. So yeah, when the Bible speaks of Abraham crossing the Jordan River, it speaks of a person who is coming out of darkness into light. And the name Jordan, like I said, means to descend. That's the literal meaning of Jordan. It means to descend. It means to go down. It speaks of a dying place. And we must understand in the Bible, whenever death is being spoken of, resurrection is also being spoken of. Because nothing really dies in the way we look at death. Things only transition from one form to another. Look at how the day is. The night turns to day, the day turns to night, the night turns to day, the day turns to night. Every, a sunset is a death, a sunset, a sunrise is a birth, a sunset is another death again, a sunrise is another birth, because reality is a continuum. Reality continues. Energy is always moving. It doesn't stop moving. It takes form time to time, but it's one continuum. You know? So whenever the Bible speaks of death, whenever we see the cross, Whenever you see the fire, whenever you see the baptism, it also speaks of a resurrection, a birth. Because there's another number that is always associated with the baptism, and that's the number 40, you see. When the flood came, it rained for 40 days and 40 days. After the Israelites came out of the, the Red Sea, they were in the wilderness for is it 40 years. After Jesus Christ crossed, was baptized by John in the river Jordan, he was 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Why is that number 40 so consistent, so consistent, so consistent? For those of us who may know, the Hebrew letters have, just like the Hebrew letters are not just letters, they are symbols representing other things. So like, for example, in the alphabet, A, B, C, D, normally A just means A, but in Hebrew, A means ox, it means the beginning, it means breath. You know, the letter A has many meanings attached to it. Aside from that, it has a numerical value. Each of their alphabets have numerical value. So for example, A, B, C, we can name it 1 to 26 because there are 26 letters of the alphabet. Does that make sense to us? Can you please uh, say that again? Uh, I said that the Hebrew alphabet, right? Each alphabet has a numerical value. And each alphabet has a meaning all, on it, all by itself. So in English, the letter A is just letter A. But in Hebrew, the letter A means Breath, it means beginning, it means ox, it means a number of things. So when we, the Hebrew use letter A, it, it has a lot of meaning to it. And each of the alphabets have a numerical value attached to it. So one of their letters, I'm going to write it on the chat now, is the letter Mem, exactly. Amarachi, you said it already. Is the letter Mem. The letter Mem has the numerical value of 40. And the letter Mem literally means water. 
So already the Hebrew letter Mem talks about 40 and water. In the Hebrew letter Mem, 40 and water are brought together. Why 40? You see, a woman conceives and is pregnant with child for 40 weeks. So you see how when they talk about the waters, you cannot understand why Paul said a person who comes out of the waters is born again. Because the waters literally speak of a womb. A womb which is a tomb for the carnal man. A womb which the carnal man perishes in. And a womb which the spiritual man is born from. Because the waters are always feminine. Ah, there's a lot of women, so there's a lot to talk about because they're going somewhere. <laughs> the waters are always feminine. Out of the waters, things are born. That's why the name Mary, Mara, is waters. Mary literally means waters. That's why, for example, in Italian, when you want to say seafood in Italian, we say frutti di mare. The name mare is from the Hebrew word Mary. And frutti di mare means seafood, fruit of the sea. So Mary literally means water. It means sea. Now, that now makes us understand what happened in Genesis chapter 1 when it says, the spirit hovered upon the waters and God said, let there be light and there was light. That was the first form of a sexual intercourse. And the waters were impregnated by the word and light came out. And the same thing happened in Matthew when the spirit overshadowed Mary, the waters, and impregnated her with light and light was born. And that's why Paul came now and took that historical story and told you the spiritual reality of it and said that I might present you a chaste virgin to your husband, the Christ, because you also are the waters. You also are Mary that ought to be impregnated by the spirit of God that you might give birth to fruit children of the Holy Spirit. That's why in Matthew chapter 12, verse 50, when Mary came with, with her sons, when Jesus Christ was preaching, and she said to them, go and tell him that his mother and brothers are here. And when the report came to Jesus Christ, he stood and he said to them, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? They are they who do the will of my father. So the Christ is always born of a virgin, but this is not just a historical thing. This is something also internal. That is why Christ comes to clean our temple. So when he entered into the temple with a whip of cords to whip the money changers, this is what the Christ always does on the inside of us because we are that temple. And the Christ must whip those money changers inside of us to clean his father's house. So that that breath of God, that life of God, we are not using it for that which he was not made for. We're not exchanging the life of God for evil. And that's why the Christ always enters the temple. And he whips out the money changers. Because we are the temple of God. You see. We are supposed to become the virgin. The Mary. The waters. Who become impregnated by the spirit. And that's why Jesus Christ said. Unless a person be born of spirit. And water. They cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Are you seeing the narrative? Can you see it? Hello? Where's everyone? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yes, we can. 
We are flag by wind. Too much, too much, too much to handle. It's like I wish there was a download button into my brain. <laughs> you know. Because this reality is must happen inside of you. So all those stories, you know, like we discussed the other day when they said Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. And I was explaining how Bethlehem means the house of bread, which you are. And Christ is always born in the house of bread, which you are. So all those stories speak of that which must transpire on the inside of us. And they are encapsulated within the symbols, the symbols, the symbols, the symbols, the stories, the accounts, the symbols. When one approaches them, one has to understand the reality that they have attached to this symbol. You know? That reality does not ever change. But it's possible for the symbol to change. And God wants me to tell us that there are many people he has also said with the same reality. But they use different symbols. And because many do not know the essence, they kill the Christ. The depth of that one has to think on it. The reality remains the same. It doesn't ever change. But the representation of the reality, the symbol of the reality, the form of the reality can change. If a person holds on to the form, I hold on to the picture of Jesus, I hold on to all the stories, I hold on to all this, I put it on my head. But I don't put on my head the spirit. I don't put on my head the principles. I don't put on my head the counsel of Christ. My religion is of no value. Because there are many people who put the form Jesus Christ on their head. But the spirit that he is, the nature that he is, the character that he is, is far away. Then of what use is such Christianity? It's not even Christianity at all. Because Christianity is about the spirit. Just like to be a Jew is about the spirit. And that's why in Revelation, John talked about the 144,000 that come out of the great tribulation. The great tribulation is similar to the childbirth because Jesus Christ spoke about the great tribulation in, I think, Matthew 16, when he talked about how when a woman is pregnant with child and she's in pain, but after that, joy comes into the world, you know. And then he now starts talking about great tribulation the travailing of the woman in labor, you know, which speaks of the process in which as we walk with God, the flesh is destroyed for the spirit of Christ to emanate from inside of us out. That is what the great tribulation revelation is teaching about. Not saying that in the coming days there's not going to be some Armageddon because it's very clear that this planet is going to be destroyed, of course, and a new one will be born on top of his ashes, but nonetheless, those book of, that book of Revelation, from beginning to end, speaks of internal realities that must crystallize within us. And when he spoke about the 144,000 Jews that come out, he's not speaking of the people in the Middle East. 
And he's not speaking of a literal 144,000 people because that's also another symbol. Because then we're not start, like I just gave an example, I used 40. And for you to understand 40, you have to look at the different events 40 is associated with to have an understanding of it. You know, like Elijah, before he climbed the mountain to hear the still small voice, he spent 40 days. So all these things, you see that same symbol, appearing, appearing, appearing all over the place, you know. Like, for example, Abraham, on the third day is when he went up to the mountain to sacrifice his son Isaac. It was on the third day that Jesus Christ was at the wedding of Cana of Galilee. Jonah was three days in the belly of the whale. Jesus Christ was three days in the belly of the earth. Paul said, after he was called by God, he spent three years in Arabia. You see, all these things, are there. those things are not random. Paul is not talking about the historical accounts. All these are symbols which they use to communicate their mysteries. Symbols that we have to start taking note of and start to study their trajectory. Because for us to start to understand the Bible, when you see a particular word used, we have what is called Bible Hall. This has strong concordance, you know. Maybe someone can write it down there for us. Research the trajectory of the word from the first time it was used, when it was in Genesis, Exodus, and follow the trajectory of that word and see all the different things that are associated with it. It will give you a kind of understanding. Do we have any questions, thoughts, comments? Any? I said, do we have any questions, thoughts, or comments? I mean, I have a question, but I felt like I could wait till the end, really. Is it, um, is it related or? Yes, it is, but it isn't like, I feel like it's not really in line with the conversation. It's just an overall question. You can ask it, no problem. Okay, so I was just going to ask, like, are you like one of those people who don't necessarily believe that the Bible, like if you, that you believe the Bible, everything in the Bible is a metaphor and not really, um, I guess no. like the historical part isn't there because like, for example, I know that some people believe, for example, the story of Adam and Eve to be just a metaphor for something and not necessarily um, fact and, or like history and spiritual, like they just see, it symbolically means something else. When we say it's metaphorical, right? It does not mean that there is no substance to what is being narrated. There were definitely people in the beginning of the world who did something that got them kicked out of the realm of God's presence. Whether it was by a literal apple tree that they ate. That's not the point. The point is... Well, they never even said anything about an apple. I think that's just something that we, we you get my ascribe to it. So yeah. something did happen in the beginning of this planet, which there were people who were in the presence of God, who enjoyed his presence, and they fell out of it by doing something antagonistic to the nature of God. You see, whether it was literally a physical snake talking on that, no, actually, it was not. Come on, it, that didn't happen. The physical things did not deceive people. That was a symbol, you know. But the fact that it was a symbol does not mean that there was no substance, reality to that story. Do you understand that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to know if that was your 
perception of the Bible? That was my question. That's why it wasn't really this conversation. It was just, is that your, like, are you one of those people who don't take, you know, the substance and just feel that, you know, you're seeing things from a metaphorical point of view? But though I don't, I don't really give myself a headache of the historical account, at least not right now. You know, maybe a time will come with God, but not right now. What is most important is that substance which is within the story, because that's what the writers are trying to get across to you, you know, the message within the story, the spirit of the story. Of course, David literally existed, you know, so did Saul, so did um, Moses. But the actual details of their life is not exactly how it was written. You know, it's not the actual details and accounts of their lives is not exactly how it was written. But the the overall, the context of their lives is what they weaved into the story. And they talked about something spiritual from it. So, so these are the Hebrews are they take they they, they they mess around with matter and they infuse their life into it and give it. So it's not about history. Anybody can write history. You don't need someone like Moses to write history. Anybody can do it. So if Moses wrote something, you must understand that is beyond historical account. The history is just a veil. Yes, exactly. That's that's also what I, I believe as well, that, you know, I think there's a tendency to be bothered by the history and to look at things very literally. But I don't think that that's the, the essence of, of what is written or what at least we've been given um, in this canon of the Bible. Like, I don't think that the point is for us to be bothered by this happened in 200 years ago and then this happened and then that happened. I think that is definitely beyond that. Um, so yeah, that, I just wanted to know if you were, you know, on the extreme other no, no, I, side I, of I things. Not, 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 anything extreme, honestly, I'm an enemy of it. <laughs> you know, so you always find me somewhere in the middle. But yeah, you know, so it's, it's a mixture of both. You know, but at the end of the day, because some people will come and start arguing and say, oh, prove to me that Moses, okay, okay, I don't need to ask. Whether Moses exists or not, that's not the point. Let's talk about the point of the story. And that is indisputable. There is a law that this universe is made by. Whether you say it's not true or not, it doesn't matter. If you spend your life creating chaos into the world, definitely you are going to invite chaos to yourself, whether you believe in it or not, you know. So that exists. Whether a person says I don't believe in Moses, it doesn't matter. You know, at the end of the day. So yeah. So yeah. Fire, can we have a question? Um. Yes. Um. I don't know if this question is going to make any sense, but okay. So with what what we're learning now? How do you break this down to a non-believer? Because like a some of my friends are like Christians, quote unquote, or like these new age Christians or non-believers, they believe that because of the many translations and the, the like understanding the, the Bible deeper and all that stuff, there's, there's things lost in translation. So they don't believe that we're even worshiping God, right? But like just in the opposite way, they don't believe, not in like the way that they want to worship God. They just feel as though the way you're the way you're talking about it now that it doesn't it's not about focusing of on if the red sea parted but the spirit of the story like somebody can use it to argue that we're we're we've gotten it all wrong completely like everything i don't know if that i'm making i'm making any sense 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, when it comes to those kind of arguments, I just throw away the history because there's no point. It's just going to cause prove this, prove that. There's no point doing that because for me, for me to stand and speak boldly about this, it's not from pieces of paper. You get what I'm saying? There's a reality that I have seen and I have experienced firsthand that gives me the confidence to speak. It's not pieces of paper. The pieces of paper are just for reference and just to help people have some contextual understanding. But for me, my confidence is rooted in the Christ that I've experienced. Because Jesus Christ said, you search through the scriptures thinking that in them you might find eternal life. Instead of you to come to me. Because the scriptures talk about a reality. The reality is the point. It's always the point. It's always the point. The scriptures give us an idea of what the reality looks like so that we don't miss it. It tells us what Christ is like, what God is like, his nature, so that when we experience it, we know, okay, this is what God is like. When we experience something that is contrary to what is written, we know this can't be God. But God must always be experienced. He can't be explained, you know? Faith is not something that comes by a person saying, I believe in this. No, faith comes from a person's direct experience of God, even if it's something as little as forgiveness. Forgiveness. Has anyone else been in that situation where we actually did something very wrong, you know, very wrong, and someone forgave us, and we knew we didn't deserve it? Have you ever been in that kind of circumstance before? Yes. Huh? Yes. How, how did it feel? How did it feel to to be to receive something that you know you didn't deserve? Huh? Yes. The voice is cracking. Sir, yes, it's hard to describe, but you just you feel like you feel very grateful when they're like, I don't know how to You know, you, you know, you don't deserve it, and you feel indebted, like, thank you, or yeah. it's like, yeah. yeah, you just feel, you feel indebted, you feel. Is so indescribable. And now that feeling that you felt when you were forgiven is the confidence by which you will also forgive another person because you know how good it is. That faith, it must be rooted in an experience, a first-hand knowledge of that which you are, you are speaking about. So for you to actually forgive someone, you have to know what forgiveness is. You have to have experienced that transforming power, that redemptive power of forgiveness. To actually truly give it to another person. Because now you know what you're giving. You know. And this is what faith is. You know. So. The Bible gives us a context. It gives us the structure of things. But the spirit is something that every single one of us must encounter. Must experience for ourselves. You know. Coyote. Uh, first, man, I just want to say thank you. This is my usual way because um, this has this is revolutionary. Uh, um, for for lack of a better expression for it, because we many times, uh, I, for example, myself growing up in a Christian home, my, my parents ministers, you know, we read the Bible like a book of Bible story and the rest of that. And over time, you know, we've 
we've not come to this understanding of the fact that uh, the Bible is like a codex system and um, yeah. you, you need, it's like um, you're going on a treasure hunt and you've been handed a treasure map and you've yeah. got to know how to decode, you know, what, what that book says. And I think that's the problem that uh, many Christians um, have in general because you read a lot of things that seem contradictory and then you look at Christians and wonder, are you guys stupid, you know? this doesn't make any sense, you know? Yeah. And those of us in the faith, uh, we've been covering up because we really don't even understand what we're reading. You know, so, <laughs> so and it tells, you know, that when, when you sit with an, an educated atheist, you, he, he will just blow you out of the water because obviously, <laughs> obviously you are in the same boat, you know, but yeah. with, with, I'm grateful to be in that time when knowledge is increasing where we are beginning to understand, like listening to you, I want to pick up the Bible again from the beginning. You know, I'm beginning to look at these things like a secret passageway, you know, that leads, because somewhere in the book of Job, I think chapter 20, somewhere in the book of Job, I can't remember the particular uh, verse now, and it says something, it said that there are hidden parts that the, the, the birds have not seen, the parts that the, the lions have not treaded upon. And it means, it shows to me that even when, because now I'm imagining what our kids in 30 years time, in 40 years time, mm-hmm. will be seeing the Bible, you know, that we are not yeah. seeing, you know, even with this new revelation that we have. And you see, the, 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 the biggest favor we can get from people is for an unveiling of our eyes to happen. What you're doing here seems like a regular Zoom session, but I just want to bless you. I just want to say thank you. I just want to thank God for you because the, the key people on our journeys in this, in this work of faith are those who are able to point us in the right direction, who are able to open the veil by the Spirit of God, help, help us open the veil. And this is, this is phenomenal. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for all your efforts and the sacrifice. May God bless you, sir. Amen, bro. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. Thank you. Second. God bless you. God bless you. So, yeah. Um, yeah. You know. So, yeah, like I said in the beginning, I said that um, this isn't a Bible study, you know, although Bible entered into it. But I just wanted to just start to give us an overview so that our way of approaching the Bible, of looking at the Bible starts to change so that when we pick up the book again, we start to see things that we did not take note of before, you know. And um, today we talked about the woman, we talked about the waters, we talked about the baptism, we talked about the veil, we talked about the death and rebirth, you know. Let us open symbols. And um, I want to leave us with that today, you know, and then we'll continue. Because this whole concept of symbols, I want to let you know where it's taking us to. It's not just about being able to read the Bible. It's also about being able to hear God. Because you see, the way the prophets speak. Oh, okay. Well, it's about to end, but you can still ask the question, you know. No but like I said, I'll put the link again. 
It's just one question. I mean, I have other questions, but the one question I want to ask right now, and I think it might be helpful um, for okay. everyone, is because you keep referring to, okay, it's the Bible or the symbols pointing to one reality. So how would you, what would you say that reality is? The reality is Christ. I won't read the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We've seen what the Christ is. The Christ is the healer. The Christ is wisdom. The Christ is compassion. I mean, the Christ is patience. The Christ is love. The Christ is endurance. The Christ never gives up. You know, this is, this is the nature. This is the, the Christ is sacrificial. He said there's no greater love than to lay one's life down for the brother. This is the Christ. That is the reality. And that is what can never be revoked. It does not matter what anyone says. This, because like I said, the first symbol we have to teach us about the Christ is the sun. The sun doesn't burn for itself. It burns for the sake of others. It gives its life as a blessing for others. And you see, because it does that, that is a guarantee that it will even become something much greater. Because the more one pours out, the more they invite in. This is the principle of nature. But the more you take, the more you have to give out. And that's the way it works. So this is the reality of Christ. And this is something that must be experienced within oneself. But like I said, all this is still leading us to our own internal growth and development and communion with God. Because we have to be able to learn how to speak with God one-on-one. -on -one. And like I said, because, like, I mean, you just joined us for the first time. So over these past weeks, we've we, we started discussion over a number of things. We talked about dreams. We talked about meditation. We talked about a number of things. And we're building a foundation, you know, to prepare us to actually be able to have direct one-on-one -on -one communion with God. That ability to speak face-to-face -face with our inner father. It's not, it's not a fallacy. It's not something reserved for a select few. It's, no, 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 no. It's something that every single one of us must have. Because every single one of us are temples of the Most High, and that reality has to start actualizing in our lives. And all these conversations we're having is to prepare us for that reality to begin to unfold from inside of us out. Because yeah, God doesn't come you. from. Oh, sorry, oh. I didn't know you were speaking. Sorry. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no problem. Sorry. No, I just, I mean, I, I didn't really ask the question for myself. I knew that that was the. I mean, answer, but I just didn't it's want great. to assume that it was obvious. Um, yeah. Fair enough. But anyway, we have a group chat. I just put the link there. So in case we have further questions, we can ask on there. And okay, also cool. We can get the, Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so yeah. So we're, we're moving towards this direction because, like, as we've seen, you know, <laughs> I'm laughing because I know how, I know the kind of deep waters God is taking us to, you know, and, um, and, um, and, um, God is pushing us into depths of experience with him, you know, and for those of us who were around in the beginning of our conversations, which were very, very spiritual in nature, and we talked about a lot of spiritual and a lot of transcendental things, you know, and it was God that told me to just bring it down a little bit because I knew that some people started to get overwhelmed and I didn't want anyone to be confused. So when I started to break down from the Bible and from the beginning and all these things, because ultimately God is taking us into that place of direct experience of the spirit. It's not a fantasy, you know. And one of the key aspects is the ability to understand 
the symbols by which God communicates with us. So that when he starts to speak to us, we don't miss it. You know, through dreams, through visions, through our environment. God's way, God's language is very dynamic. But the spirit remains. Once we start to understand the essence, the spirit, you know, when we start to understand the essence, the spirit, we can start to understand the different forms God takes in order to lift us, in order to build us. So yes, um, yes, this brings us to the very wonderful end of today's um, conversation. And um, next week we would, um, we'll take it a bit up a notch and we will um, begin to talk about um, symbols from, uh, we'll begin to talk about symbols from a much more spiritual perspective and we're going to go further. So this was like, um, this is an introduction and foundation and next week we would we push further into this and see what God has in store. I don't know, but I, when the time comes, we'll find out, you know. So, yeah, on that note, our conversation has come to a marvelous close. Before we, um, because usually I like for a few people to, I like for a few people to um, tell us one or two things they took from this conversation in a way to help us to reflect and also for others to also remember what we discussed about. But before we do that, um, I want five people to volunteer to write a summary of today's conversation on the group chat tomorrow or Sunday. Who are the volunteers? <laughs> I said shock is an introduction. <laughs> Lol. That's funny. So yeah, I'm going to ask again. I'm going to ask again. Um, 